see. Yeah, there's a list. Yeah, I got it. Let's see. Would that be a list to the left or a list to the right? Uh, that would be a list from top to bottom. Yeah. Dave apparently is in the kind of mood that could get him shot. <laughs> bang, bang, he shot me down. Bang, bang, he ran over a clown. What? I like how they keep finding new uses for, for antique aircraft. Look at this. These 747s are just like... Uh, so mm-hmm. what, what do we got here? We got a uh, uh, some sort of super-duper 747 business jet. Is that uh, fair? What is it? The 747-8? Uh, yeah, the 747-8. What is it? Yeah. David, you put this in here. What's the 747-8? Well, that's the newest incarnation of... What started out in the 60s is the plain old 747, and it's bigger, has higher operating weight, more, more volume. It's got a new wing. Uh, it's going to be more fuel efficient, or it is more fuel efficient, uh, and it is going to be replacing the 7400, uh, if I understand it right. Eventually, it will be the dominant model, and 400 will go away. Mm-hmm. And they're making different versions of this for cargo and, uh, of course, passenger traffic. I think cargo was the first one they were doing out of the box. Yeah. But yeah. VIP, or as Fred George put it, VIP is where well, uh, one of them just went. It's a, a, a new personal general aviation aircraft in the form of a, a going to be refitted for a private use 747-8. It, it boggles the mind. Uh, do, do they give any indication of how many of these they expect to sell? What's the market for pr- personal 747s? Well, let me give you the best reference that I can as quickly as I can. Fifteen years ago. When Boeing Business Jets was first starting to emerge as a partnership between GE Engines and Boeing up uh, in Seattle, uh, the the forecast for the worldwide market of large you know airliners as private jets mm-hmm. was put depending on who you listen to three hundred to five hundred airplanes okay. over over a twenty year period right. But everybody thought, well, there's enough of that in low volume to fill out the lines, and we'll just get in bed with some completion centers and offer some options for it, and they can be built right down the same line except finished elsewhere. Uh, We're already uh, well over 300 of these uh, monsters delivered, sold, and on order. If you start with the Boeing business jet, which is a 737 variant, mm-hmm. and the Airbus corporate jet, which is an A319-320 variant, uh, and then Boeing and Airbus, uh, and eventually Embraer and Bombardier, all throwing in airliner airframes as regular options to be built out as private corporate uh, uh, business jets, however you wanted to do them. So I'm saying... In my mind, what I'm hearing from the guys that forecast this stuff, nobody knows. They've continued to sell fairly well despite the down market. Matter of fact, right now, I think the quickest you could get a 737 variant of a Boeing business jet would be about 2014. 
Yeah. Oh, oh, these poor guys, they're going to have to wait. They can't get and that's, one. That, that's getting it out of Renton. That's not out of the completion center, dude. I see. That's just getting it out of Renton. <laughs> Who buys these things? I mean, you know, the stereotypical, you know, cliche, you know, is, is an Arab oil chic or something. But- Which is exactly the cliche that fits the, uh, the, the, the buyer of the 747-8. Uh, which it kind of some interesting specs that go with this. They're going to put in another $150 million on a custom interior done by Lufthansa Technic in Europe uh, that's going to add 100,000 pounds to the operating empty weight of the airplane. Uh, and at today's... That's all right, because prices, it's probably going to carry fewer passengers than usual. So At today's fuel prices, it's a paltry $320,000 to top it off. But once you do, you can cover about 8,000 nautical nonstop. So, yeah. Where do you want to go today? Yeah, really, really. Wasn't there a, an A380 uh, outfitted as a business jet also in, in, in the works it's, or something like that? Yeah, it's in the works. It's in the pipeline. I'm not sure if yeah. that one's been delivered just yet. Uh, yeah. I believe it might have been, but that was like 5,000-some-odd square feet of floor space between the two decks mm-hmm. uh, that was also going to get this kind of treatment at an even higher price tag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you Well, know. there you go. All right. So so we, what you're saying is we need to get our names on the list if we're going to get one of these because there'll, there'll be a wait. Yeah, you need to get in line. I mean, if you want it sooner than you know a couple of three years, yeah, you need to get, you need get on the list and make your down payment. And I'll tell you what, you guys hold our place in line. I'll start pulling them together the donations to fill it up the first time. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah right, uh, exactly. Now, now would be a, maybe this episode we can double up on the um, uh, con- con- you know yeah, yeah the tip con- jar contribution. Yeah, the tip jar thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, All right. Well. But so that's one that use. much fuel supply. We may be able to get all of our annual use out of one top off. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, so that's one use uh, alternate use for a seven forty seven. And now, Jeb, you've called our attention to this. Uh, am I reading this right? Are they basically going to going to take two seven forty sevens, part them out, and then tr- build a spaceship out of the pieces? Well, basically, parts? that's uh, not not a spaceship per se, but a spaceship launch platform. Okay, what, tell me what's uh, the story here? What's the story, Jeb? A, Something called a company called Strato Launch Systems. Uh, earlier this year, or I, actually February, uh, it has been that long, I guess, since we did an episode. Now, now, but, now. Uh, now. I'm not. I'm not pointing <laughs> fingers. I'm. I'm just saying. You know, it's, it's nothing. Nothing. Our listeners haven't realized. But um, beginning in um, uh, January, uh, they broke ground uh, for a facility out at Mojave, and then in in mid February. Um, they they uh, purchased the first of two Boeing 747-400 they're going to be buying from United Airlines. Um, scaled composites, uh, the uh, Rutan uh, concern out in Mojave, uh, and, and along with uh, BAA, excuse me, BAE Systems, the, the former British Aerospace, um, will be developing a plan to basically um, come up with a... Um, a launch platform consisting of two 747 fuselages uh, joined uh, instead of a, a low wing. This will be, a, according to this artist's rendering anyway, this will be a high wing aircraft. Um, one side of it will have, uh, apparently the right side will have the uh, cockpit. Uh, 
uh, and uh, whatnot. The wing will be a fairly straight wing, I guess optimized for high altitude. It will have six engines. Uh, so somewhere there's you know two spare engines laying around somewhere uh, after they combine both of these airplanes. And a bunch of structure and whatnot. <clears throat> and between the two fuselages will be suspended a payload. Uh, yeah, okay. The payload uh, could be pretty pretty much anything, and, and uh, they'll carry this. Um, doesn't say to what altitude um, they will uh, plan to uh, try to fly this this aircraft. <clears throat> I'm guessing you know fifty ish, sixty ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, like uh, you know, the um, 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 spaceship one effort. Uh, they carried that aircraft. They carried that <clears throat> fairly high before they did the launch. Right. This is basically the same kind of system, and in fact, it it, it looks a lot like um, the uh, the mothership uh, for Spaceship One. Uh, the name, the exact name of which escapes me. At least it's similar in concept, if not uh, uh, similar in design. White Knight. Um, White Knight. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but what's the name of the uh, Virgin one? That's what I'm, I'm trying to remember. Um, it's the guy's mom's name, isn't it? It's like Gloria, or no, it's not Gloria. But it's, Gertrude, or something. No, 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 no. All right, I'll, yeah, keep talking. So, so I'm, now I'm looking at this picture for the first time. You know, again, no, 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 no. I'm looking at this picture for the first time. So that is an odd airplane. That's that's, uh, yeah, okay. That's interesting. And this is this is all you know the, the Paul Allen uh, Microsoft fortune that's uh, contributing. I won't say all of it, contributing a great deal of this. Um, and I'm sure you know, um, and of course the Rutan uh, expertise uh, coming from Scale Composites, and uh, <clears throat> obviously a bunch of other players involved in this thing. But this is this is this is kind of cool. This is kind of I, I you know we've talked on several occasions. Well, I don't know about several occasions. We've certainly talked about. Uh, uh, the demise of the space program and, and the demise of the shuttles and and, and this kind of thing and and uh, anybody who would want to sit down with me would you know and chat about some of this would say you know why why are we doing why are we continuing to try to do things the way we've been doing them uh, relative to trying to get to space and and here here's another example of how private inter- I won't say private enterprise is doing it better than government can, but this is a great example of how uh, some innovation and um, throwing some money at a problem um, can, uh, you know, break the mold here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think it's kind of cool. It, it should be worth pointing out here that Scaled Composites in Mojave is, is working on, on the project with us, but Mr. Rutan is retired from there, right. so we're not That's sure exactly how much involvement he might have. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah uh, I didn't mean to imply that he was heavily involved in this, but the, the, the organization, the infrastructure, the, uh, the uh, engineering expertise that he left behind certainly is contributing to it. Yeah, yeah it, it, it definitely you can see his influence on it. And uh, uh, interesting idea. I mean, there's already – actually, we've known that aerial launch platforms had a lot to be said for them going back to our X programs. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yeah. the Bell X-1 was launched off of a B-29. Uh, uh, same with the X-15, uh, some other – uh, supersonic and, and really high speed take our test pilots to the edge of space platforms uh, didn't come off the ground uh, on their own power they they got a ride up to the high on the flight levels and then took it from there so and, and it was generally a Boeing product that took them there 
Generally was. It generally was. Interesting, uh, interesting observation there, buddy. Because, uh, yeah, those were B-29s typically. Uh, and later on, they were B-52s. Mm-hmm. B-52. Now, who made the B-52? Oh, well, let me, oh, let me think about see, that. See, that was a Boeing buff, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. It was. It was. Let's, Let's see now. So according to uh, some stories I found in Google, uh, the when they originally announced the Virgin Galactic Mothership, uh, they initially named it after Sir Richard's mom, Eve. And that's it. Oh, yeah. That's, that's what right. I was trying to remember. I am seeing other stories now that are suggesting that it's been given a different name since then. There's a reference to, oh, I've lost it now. Um, let's see now. There's a reference on the Virgin Galactic site to something that they're calling uh, North Galactic's North Star. I don't, hmm. know, if, I don't know if that's well, the... remember, we've got you know, more ships I, coming in line here. I guess. When, I, when I first heard that that launch craft was to be named Eve... I figured it had some some biblical reference, you know, giving birth to the first of or you know something like that. But okay, now that I know that it was it's named after his mother, I uh, look yeah. at it a little bit differently. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, it, and and I got I, I keep looking at this photograph. I'm sorry, this artist rendering of the Strata Launch Systems platform here. Uh, the one that's going to be built out of the 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 747s, uh, the 400s. And the more I look at that, I realize that with the right paint job, that you could sell miniatures of that in the adult film store. <laughs> okay, well then, that's, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get better here, than that. You know, I was I was going to make a comment about. I wonder where the landing, what the landing gear configuration is going to be on this. But no, no, they <laughs> no, just no, go, no, go no. right, right for the cheap joke. Yeah, it's right, okay. really, yeah, really. Right. No, no, no. Let's, yeah, I, welcome. I thought we were, you know, I thought we were going to have another, you know, normal episode, but no, no, no we no, can't no. do that. It's been too long. We've forgotten how to do this, or we're remembering finally. Anyways, welcome, folks, to episode two hundred. Welcome, finally folks to episode 276 of uncontrolled airspace the general aviation podcast you're gonna be hearing a little bit of background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's It's not really good background noise yeah this is this is the best seat in the house we got skywriters now. We got skywriters now. We got skywriters now. Does that say UCAP? I can't. It's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in sight, clear around. Check East National Ground. Good afternoon, sir. Taxi via Foxtrot and Alpha. We're recording this episode on uh, Sunday evening, March 11th, I think. Sunday. 2012. And uh, uh, the first day of daylight savings time. Yay! And uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar, my two good friends, uh, Dave Higdon is with us, talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, David? Yeah, having a wonderful time. Uh, just uh, nice, relaxed weekend. Saw a really fun flick yesterday. Uh, kind of getting ready to kick back after this. All my chores for for the day are done. Yeah, and and look at all the space for batteries in that thing. Yeah, okay. And also out there is uh, coming to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida is Jeb Burnside. Hi Jeb, how are you? I'm I'm doing okay. Uh a little I'm think I'm getting a little under the weather here, but I'm I'm fighting it and and trying to trying to hold it at bay. Um but Dave, I have to tell you that uh <clears throat> the current technology and the products of which you're thinking is is really rechargeables. Well, you know, and, and there's plenty of plenty of places to install the jack, Jeb. 
<laughs> okay. I'm not sure if I understand that. I'm not sure if I want to. Um, uh, so we tried to schedule this episode about three or four different times in the last week and a half. Um, and in a couple of the earlier iterations, Amy was going to join us too. Um, but sadly, uh, Amy got tied up. Uh, Amy's off at the... Uh, the uh, her the, her organization was conference in aviation international women in conference? aviation conference yeah the big conference so uh, she'll have some stories for us and we'll we'll invite her back into the hangar as soon as she comes back to earth um, and uh, and we'll be looking forward to that but uh, uh, having said that I am uh, Jack Hodgson coming to you uh, once again from the uh, winter headquarters of UCAP on the evergreen evergreen easy for you to say evergreen slopes of Garrison Hill in Dover New Hampshire. Uh, where I finally returned after a whirlwind marathon uh, uh, streak of travel. Oh my gosh, the travel that I've done over the last in the last week, a little over a week, like like ten days. In ten days, I was on six different airline flights. I crossed a national border four times. I went through TSA style security six times in that week, basically. Um, I was in a snowstorm in Canada, and I was in 90 degrees wearing shorts in Florida uh, during that period. Uh, it was crazy. You're not getting paid enough. <laughs> well, yeah, no, never getting paid enough. No, I'm being, getting paid just fine, actually. But uh, well, welcome back to the 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 the. the Welcome, welcome, whatever. Welcome back too. Yeah, thank you, thank you. But that's largely why we had uh, such a hard time scheduling and why we've been delayed. I calculate that it's been seventeen days since the last time we recorded an episode. So, what's your what's your name again? Yeah, I know, really. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm back now, and uh, but because I the I was busy with the travel and busy with the work, I had to uh, basically beg off a couple of different times. And you guys were very very uh, understanding. So oh well, you know, yeah. we got some <laughs> catching up to do. Yeah, we. Got a little catching up to do, but just uh, be careful next time you go to the post office. Yeah, office. I know. No, don't say that. The NSA is listening. My God, uh, where are we here? What's going on here? So, uh, oh, in someplace here, I've got up the list on my screen. Let's see now. Um, so, Jeb, you uh, showed us this video of uh, what this particular uh, video <clears throat> person claims to be the top ten low passes of all time. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's a nice little assembly of, of uh, low passes. It is. Most of them are, are military. It starts off, of course, with the uh, uh, the first of the two low passes from, from Top Gun. Top kind Gun, of iconic, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Kind of iconic, but... Uh, um, and then goes on with several others. Most of them are military. So if that's your, uh, if that's your, if you're if you're not into military aircraft making low passes, you probably don't want to click on this video. Uh, one of them, I believe, was uh, a 707. It might have been uh, uh, the old model 248 um, uh, thing. But uh, I'm sorry. Actually, I think it might have been a DC-8. I, I I don't recall, and I'm not going to look at the video right now. Is that the uh, that's the four engine one? That was the four engine. Yeah, okay. I, I, I couldn't. I, I don't remember if that was a 70 or if it was a DC-8. I just yeah, I, and I'm notoriously bad at aircraft recognition, but I thought it was a 707. I thought uh, it was a 707 the first time I saw it. You know, but yeah, that was a cool so, one. That was. But I do remember uh, a. A video of a DC-8 doing a low pass at some point, yeah. too. So it may have been that. I don't recall. In, in some um, ways, that was the lowest pass of all. I mean, if you kind in, of... In some ways, it, mainly because the camera was like on a ridge looking down, well, and, the, yep. and the, the jet was going down a ravine or, or something like that, a canyon. 
Right. Uh, so the, the camera was actually looking down a little bit on the aircraft. But the other thing, I think, is that that one seemed to be more than the others well within its wingspan of the ground. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, a lot of these were very, very low. Um, so the guy, and the uh, the person who compiled these um, put them in what he considered to be the order, you know, to, to working mm-hmm. way down to number one. I'm not sure if I agree with him about, about of the ten he picked, um, the one that I think he called number three which showed uh, this guy standing on the center line in, right. you know, kind of military fatigues, probably, you know, in some sort of, I don't know, military base or war zone or something like that. And just standing casually, you know, on the center line as this, I don't know, looked almost like a Harrier or something, um, came zooming down the center line really low. Inverted, as yeah. I recall, wasn't it? Um, One, I, I'm, I'm not he sure. He was right side up. It was number five. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Uh, it's a Harrier. That was that was really low. I'm not sure that was a Harrier. It might have been a tornado. Okay, yeah, tornado. But uh, you know, I mean, it, so it, it was gutsy that the pilot flew that low. But what was really gutsy was yeah, the that, guy that standing there. That yeah. took a couple, I'll tell you, because he yeah. was just standing there casually, sort of with his hands on his hips, as this airplane. The, I, you know, they and they showed a little slow mo of it afterwards. But this mm-hmm. airplane must have passed within a couple feet of his head. Yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, number three. Oh my God! I think that's the one we're talking about, David. Number three. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And so what uh, aircraft is he that? He didn't duck. He didn't he duck. Didn't, he number didn't five. Duck. The dude flinched, but this yeah. guy doesn't. Yeah, he just he just stood there, you know, and this airplane went right over the top of his head, and he just kind of like you know casually turned and watched it walk, watched it fly away, and uh, you know that that guy's got some. I'll tell you right there. That's yeah. a, that's a good one. Yeah, number three. That, but of the, course, they're missing you, as you pointed out. They're missing uh-huh. the one that's somewhat notorious, uh, which is the uh, the news reporter guy who's doing a little stand up live shot as an airplane came from behind right, him. The Spitfire came from behind him, and that was a pretty good one. So yeah, he, he, he did like f me, f me, f yeah. me, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's laughing, and, and oh my god, you know, uh, f me, f me. And, yeah, he was a little <clears> bit <throat> startled was, by that, the whole thing. Yeah. He didn't. He didn't know what he what he'd bitten off. Yes. Yep. So but, uh, I think the number two that shows the 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 I think it's a KC one thirty five platform yeah. uh, down below ridge level, uh, turning and burning, and of course they're nice and stable. Oh, Got to yeah. give them that, particularly in ground effect where they get a little lighter on the stick. Oh yeah. But yeah. man, what a what a lot of weight and horsepower to be throwing around in ground effect. Yeah, <laughs> truly. So it's a cool video. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, Jeff will put a link to it in the show notes, and uh, you should check it out. It's kind of cool. And and remember the disclaimer: don't try this at home. <laughs> yeah, right. you've read about right. it in aviation safety. Tom Turner's talked about it. It no, leave le- yeah. leave it to the stunt pilots just, and the just, pros. Just because we talk about it doesn't mean we recommend it. Yeah, really. Yeah. I mean, really. All kidding aside, it's kind of cool to watch these but these are kind of reckless dangerous you know we shouldn't be glorifying this i don't know but we are under under controlled circumstances by people that have really got some experience in this kind of thing we see it at air shows all the time i don't think we see it quite this fast you see that at air shows all the time that i'm probably not going to do this yeah so anyways please don't try this at home so don't, don't try this at someone else's home either. Just, you yeah, know, don't right. try this. <laughs> don't try this. Don't try this. Um, I just have a quick question for you guys. I don't think there's any conversation here, but I, this is a question that came to mind, and I wanted to ask you, and I'm going to ask you on the podcast. Um, uh, 
how long a runway is long enough? And I know this varies. I know this this just a whole you know whole universe of answers here based on weather and conditions and airplane you're flying and whatnot. But but Jeb, when you're flying, when you're going to be flying the Debbie and Dave, when you're going to be when you were flying the Comanche, when you will be flying whatever, probably the Comanche again. Probably Comanche again. Yeah. Um, okay. How long a runway? What's the sort of runway length that starts to make you think it might not be long enough to operate into? Well, the, the I guess the first blush. For me, is is two thousand feet. Okay. Um, yep. And and then we have to start considering conditions. Yeah. Um, yeah. How heavy am I? Is the sea level? Is it hot day? Uh, what's the wind doing? Things of this sort. Um, the the runway here at, at Hidden River is twenty five hundred feet. It's paved. Um, and uh, to me, uh, it's certainly adequate. I have I have no qualms most of the time getting in and out of here, uh, but. If it's a hot day, and I'm full of gas, and I got a couple of people, um, I'm going to think really long and hard about this before yeah. uh, before I do it. Uh, and it, it also depends on which direction I'm, I'm departing. Uh, going out to the west, um, there are, are a few obstacles. Going east, uh, there are some trees um, and whatnot, and I don't want to uh, you know, obviously be scraping them. But... Uh, I, I have regularly flown warriors and trauma hawks and, and maybe even skyhawks in and out of you know two thousand twenty one hundred feet um, to 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 coin a phrase and I and this has to go back to to uh, quote old unquote Bob Siegfried uh, uh, denizen on the uh, the uh, beach list from from way way back. It depends. Yeah, no, uh, it, it obviously depends. <clears throat> yeah, I, I was just sort of wondering, you know, what's the number, you know, that's sort of approximately the, the dividing line. Mm-hmm. David, what's your answer? Two thousand uh, less. Well, if we if we're using if we're using uh, uh, the Comanche that we had, which is going to be like the Comanche out one I want to get next. Two uh, thousand's my number as well. Uh, if I was still flying the, uh, the, the Hershey bar wing Cherokee, uh, I could lop another 500 feet off of that in most of the same circumstances that would cause me to think of 2000 as constraining for the Cherokee mm-hmm. uh, for the Comanche, mm-hmm. just such a huge difference in wing. Yeah, there's, there's that. There's also, okay, well, are we talking about runway length? Only are, are we talking about you know is there a fifty foot pine tree at the at the end right. of that two thousand yeah. feet yeah um, so there. There's, there's all those kinds of considerations too. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I know when you're really really thinking about it and calculating it in, in flight planning, it there are a lot of factors. I was just wondering what sort of, you know, I I, I you know my a lot of my time of course is out of Palo Alto in California. I've talked about a lot, and that's like twenty four twenty five hundred feet, um, and so that's kind of I've never had a problem with that. Yet I've talked to pilots who talked about you know less than three thousand being you know kind of an mm-hmm. issue, and mm-hmm. uh, and I always thought well geez twenty five is fine. I saw King Air's operating in and out of this this yeah. airport all the time you know so uh they're probably my, a little light they probably frame, work yeah my frame of reference and i guess the way i develop my own judgment patterns is that my 50 foot obstacle clearance length and the amount of pavement need to be equal wait a minute say uh, that again i need my p- pavement length to be as long as my 50 foot obstacle clearance distance in other words, uh, okay. the, the obstacle has to be 2,000 feet beyond the unit. 
for the run well, uh, like the the Comanche the the book number on it was twenty two hundred feet to clear a fifty foot obstacle. Oh, okay. Uh, at gross weight on a standard day. So you want uh, the pavement to be twenty two hundred. I want. To, I, I start out wanting the pavement to be twenty two hundred, adjusting from there. Yeah. Uh, because that gives me a little bit more cushion on the, on the short end, and it, coming into a runway, uh, boy, I've got lots more caveats on that because the way I came up in flying, uh, I got really comfortable with the idea of being of of, of getting an airplane into a, a space I knew I could not get it out of again. Right. right. Mm-hmm. That's the other. Thing. You know that that re, that departure trip not being part of the equation. Right. Yeah. Right. What got me to thinking about this is, you know, I'm sort of thinking a, a lot these days about airports. I, quite frankly, I, I, I lust for your situation down there in Florida, Jeb, to be on an air park. Um, and uh, so I'm looking around at, at uh, sort of air park like places up here in, in central New England. Um, one of them that's that's very appealing geographically and sort of in the community that seems to be growing up around it is one in a place called Brookline, New Hampshire. I gave you guys a link to it in the notes here. Right. Right. Um, the problem is that it only has 1900 feet of pavement and at least one end is very very, very close to the trees. Yeah, I see that. And, and you know, and part of my decision-making here is that I want to live on an airport that's big enough for my friends to comfortably fly into and visit, you know. And so I was just kind of trying to figure out, I wonder what, what that number is for people, you know. Well, as, long as, as long as I'm taking off to the, to the uh, uh, where there aren't any trees into that runway. Right, to the north-ish, yeah, right. Yeah. I don't know if that's north or south, but as long as I'm taking off to the north, I don't really care. The trick comes... Um, Especially to, for me, the trick comes on getting in uh, if there's a cross. Right. Yeah. Especially a rusty cross. Yeah. Um, I can still get down and stopped in the 1900 there. Um, it won't be pretty. Right. Yeah. No. Getting. You're right. Getting. Getting in is. I would. To me, anyway. Yeah, get, getting, getting, yeah, getting in is easier. Getting in is easier than getting out. Right. Um, but uh, you still have to get out. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, well, one of the things I always liked about uh, visiting Dead Cow, you, know, you guys have seen Dead Cow. Uh, it's it, it sets inside an industrial park area. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's constrained. There's no cushion to overrun. There's no cushion to come up short. Although the departure on one seven is much uh, more open than the arrival to one seven mm-hmm. or the departure on three five. Uh, just to there's a road just past the end of the runway, and right across that road, well, it's a two-lane street, or four-lane street, I'm sorry, uh, are great big telephone poles with wires stretched across them. Uh, so if you're coming in from the north or departing to the north, there's a 300-foot displaced threshold. That brings dead cow down into the 2,200-foot territory. Yeah, It's really easy to use a place like dead cow as a place to practice and sharpen your small field skills because there's a turnoff at midfield. And if you could hit the displaced threshold mark or past it and then be stopped within 50 feet of the turnoff at midfield, hell, you were getting down and getting stopped in 1,200 feet, baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Down and yeah, stopped a- over a big, big 100-foot obstacle, not a 50. Yeah, there's a field down um, Tidewater area of Virginia. I forget the name of it. It's it's right on um, 
just right on the Potomac, I guess, right there as it, as it widens out and, and before it gets down to Norfolk. And a buddy of mine had his, uh, his Bonanza down there for maintenance and asked me to fly him down there. And I looked it over. Yeah, okay, fine. Let's, let's go. And we're on the way down there, and, and he said, "Yeah, you gotta remember now. This runway's pretty short." I said, "Well, you know, yeah, I looked it up. What do you, what do you mean short?" And and it was like I don't know, twenty five hundred feet or two thousand mm-hmm. feet, twenty one hundred right. feet or something like that. I I'll see if I can look it up here while while we're talking. But uh, I said, "Well, getting in is not an issue, and you're getting out, so I got that. You know, two hundred pounds I'm saving going out. So what's the problem?" And he said, "He's well, it just it just seems a little short to me." I said, "Look, I will make the midfield turnoff." With here, uh, <laughs> yep. he's like, no, you won't. I said, trust me, I will make the midfield turnoff on this landing. He's like, you can't. I said, oh, well, of course I can. And um, sure enough, you know, got the airplane slowed down and, and got it behind the power curve, and you know, did your did your basic uh, um, uh, slow flight approach. And yeah, I, I used the brakes pretty hard, uh, but got it down and stopped and, and did the the. Uh, uh, let's see if this is it. Did the um, midfield turnoff on the thing without any issue? And he was just beside himself. He said, "I didn't know Bonanza could do that." I said, "Well, come on down. You know, let me let me show you how to do this." Yeah, sometimes. very cool. But um, um, let me see if let me see if that's it. Yeah, no, putting putting there. putting the Comanche after we modified it so that its runway numbers were much better, much shorter. Right, uh, you know, in the uh, in the tricked up airframe mod speed mod state that we sold it in, compared to when we bought it, uh, that twenty two hundred foot number uh, was down below seventeen hundred feet. Uh, by the time we sold it, uh, it was easier to get it in and out of small fields because you could the approach speed was lower. Uh, but actually, had a guy look at me and tell me that there was no way that. Anybody other than me would be able to do what I'd just shown him the airplane could do. And I said, no, I just, show- <laughs> I just showed you, you know, turn by turn, knot by knot, you know, right. downwind at this speed, slow down on base, slow five knots, slow down on final five knots, cross the number right at the, right as the stall horn would be coming on if I had one. And you, you, you don't kiss the runway, you arrive. That's right. You you compress the struts. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you you don't make your spine shorter, but you know, the the, the airplane knows that you're there and anybody with you knows that you're there. And you anybody leave weight on any- the mains and, and hold the yoke back while you start to put the flaps away until you can't hold the nose, you put the brakes on and bang, you're down, you're stopped. You can't do you're not supposed to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. I, I, Wow, I thought showing people would make a difference. Mm-hmm. No, 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 you can't do that. Okay. Boom. Boom. Yeah, okay. That's pretty interesting. Thank you. So, uh, but 19, and it's not, I wouldn't feel comfortable inviting my friends into, well, like you said, it depends. It just depends. Yeah, uh, well, it also depends on what they're flying. Yeah, no, I know. I know. Anyways, uh, Brookline's probably not going to be the airport anyways. Um, yeah, well, but, and, yeah. and think about think about the runway enhancing impact of sub-freezing temperatures yeah what's that <laughs> well, the well runway, yeah you can get in and out of that gets shorter you can get in and out of there a lot easier when it's cold when it's cold yeah yeah, yeah right 
when you, when you get say. a density altitude a few hundred feet below sea level, it gets better. Yeah, but you got to remember a big a big part of the plan is to settle in New England, but not for the winter time. So, ah, okay. Now you need a second runway. Yeah, right. See, now you're just now you're just complicating. I, well, yeah. yeah, that's the whole point. Just that's... cut to the chase. Go to Florida. Yeah, really. Anyways, no, okay, something like that. Uh, Jeb, so Jeb, yeah, over huh? the years of doing this podcast, uh, you uh-huh. have numerous times made reference to the legendary Gordon Baxter column about a cat. Uh, a cat, yeah. what, skydiving or something? And <laughs> Skydiving cat. And you actually found this column online. I finally, like, finally found this. Now, as it happens, Google uh, Books has a bunch of back issues of Flying Magazine online, free for the access. And someone brought this to my attention a few weeks ago. And I said, you know, I wonder if I can find the cat column. And sure enough, I did. Now, I'm not convinced this is the cat column. Oh, really? See, now okay, I didn't get see, a chance. This is the, the title. Now, let, let's go back. This is the January 1982. Yeah, 82. Jan- January 82 issue. No, it's, I'm sorry, May of 82. May of 1982. May 82 issue of Flying Magazine. And page 92 thereof has Gordon Baxter's uh, uh, column for that month. And um, this particular column is Cat Tale 2, um, the, implying, of course, that there's a Cat Tale 1 or, or, or a, 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 a previous column. And, and he's talking about June of 1980 as when the, uh, the original column ran. And I, of course, had to take him at his word. But unfortunately, for some reason, the June, I'm sorry, yeah, the June 1980 Flying Magazine is not online with Google Books right now. So it's not, or at least it wasn't accessible at the time, so we can't really go find it. But this is, this is certainly, this hits a lot of the points that I remember. Now, to give us the short version here, what's, give uh-huh. us a summary, the executive summary of this story. What was it? Well, I'll just read this one paragraph. Um, that will kind of give you the flavor. Uh, this is the third graph in the columns. As I understand it, these fellows have a champ. They carry the cat to something like 3,000 feet and slide him out through a six-inch diameter piece of stovepipe. I'm told the cat is waiting to jump again when they taxi back to the grass strip. <laughs> the cat's wearing a parachute, or they just drop the cat through the... The, the cat's not wearing a parachute. <laughs> 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 uh, well, yeah yeah so and then you know you get into um uh you know baxter's trying to verify this and he's you know, he's doing some research and and um he talked to the local gato office gato was precursor to the fisdo that we have now and um 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 Whatever. And then they went to the, the Association for the Society or the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, <laughs> yeah. the ASPCA. Yeah. Says the, he says, the ASPCA brushed me off, saying, quote, any cat that persists in hanging around small airports and light aircraft is beyond concern to us. <laughs> and it, it's just a lot of little zingers in there. It's, it's just a, a classic column by Gordon Baxter. And if, if, uh, if, you're, if you're a Gordon Baxter fan like I was, um, um, this was uh, um, this was just a classic, uh, classic thing. Yeah, and I, I'm just kind of, I'm just glad I found it. It's a, yeah, that's it's a great column. Uh, 
and interesting while you were talking about this and I'm browsing through the whole issue here mm-hmm. I didn't have to get but one page away from the contents page where the uh, flying mail letters to the editor starts some several of them about Gordon's prior column right and there's an ad on the left side of the page that just jumped out at me what's that the eagles aerobatic flight uh-huh uh-huh. Oh yeah, okay. In matching Christian Eagles uh-huh. from left to right, Gene Susie, Tom Poberesne, and the uh, late Charlie Hillard. Yeah. I'm sorry, I flipped it. The late Charlie Hillard, Tom Poberesne, Gene mm-hmm. Susie. Uh mm-hmm. looking really young, smiling while they were still part of the uh uh air show circuit. Uh man, to see those guys perform again they did this barely out of ground effect triple snap roll on takeoff to open up their acts mm-hmm. that just always made my jaw drop yeah yeah that was a great act that was it was quite some time ago when everson retired 15 years ago probably oh longer than that i think yeah Maybe, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've only been going to Oshkosh it's, for what twenty, twenty one, twenty two well, years. They, but uh, and I know they f- they were flying at least for the first few years I was at Oshkosh, so it can't be more than twenty, little, you know, much more than twenty years that they retired. But yeah, that's, not much, not much. Now that I'm now that I think about it, and I'm going to say ninety two, ninety three. Yeah. Yeah, and they retired the, the act. Now those three airplanes now hang in the lobby of the museum, right? Is that I'm, I'm right. Yeah. I'm well, pretty- I know their original uh, three pit specials when from when they were the uh, Red Devils uh, are in the uh, uh, atrium of the museum. I'm not sure where the Christian Eagle airplanes are. I thought. Well, you may be right. You may be right. Yeah. But anyways, um, so Jeb, there's another treasure that came out of discovering the uh, Flying Magazine archives here. Yeah. And and that is that. Uh, so I don't know how to put this exactly. Um, so you were a celebrity author long, long, long ago. Oh, oh, I never realized this. Oh. I, I never realized that you were right. in. Let's see if I can find this. What year was this? In uh, January ninety one. I'm sorry. Uh, January of ninety one. You were the author of one of Flying magazines. I learned about flying from that. Yeah, I I, I didn't know you were going to bring that up, but that was just that was just between the three of us. Oh, really? Well, Oh, yeah. You don't want to share this? I, I, I we can do this. I don't care. Well, we don't need to go. It's an interesting piece, and uh, uh, it's uh, you know a little bit of a, a IFR uh, equipment snafu that turned out not to be you know uh, could have gone bad. If I guess could, if it could have gotten a lot worse before it got better. Yeah, it kind of got to the to the edge of being a real problem, uh, and uh, but you managed the situation. You've you know found your options and uh, and uh, got on the ground safely, but. Uh, um, as an interesting piece, and I never realized that uh, you've never made mention the fact that you, the author of one of these, uh, learned about flyings. Yeah, I, uh, years, years ago, that wasn't really my first bit of aviation writing. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Were you at NBAA still at the time? No, I was uh, uh, long, long left NBAA. I had, been, I was actually at Matusa uh, um, Electric, Panasonic, in their DC office at the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, number 607, uh, Radio Days with a Z, Days with a Z, and uh, interesting story, um, yeah. and uh, um, uh, very cool. You should post a link. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get Jeff to put that in the show notes as well. And uh, let's see now. Where are we here? What time is it? Oh, we're, well, we're kind of reaching, gradually before, reaching. Before we, before we leave this real quick, yeah. um, going back, perhaps even the 91 issue, uh, the January 91 issue, but, but this 82 issue and, and, and I'm sure other issues, just scrolling through here and, and looking at some of the news stories. Here's one on, on – uh, I can't tell which page of, uh, I'm sorry, it's page 17 of the uh, May 1982 issue. Um, There's a news item talking about um, the Reagan administration Mm -hmm. and uh, how much of the FAA's budget shall be funded by, drum roll please, user fees. Really? (laughs) Oh, man, see? Yeah. Yeah, and... so point one is there's nothing new under the sun and and I think pretty much every administration since the eighties has at one level or another proposed user fees for for aviation um, that's a very simplistic uh response to a very complicated problem and and i don't I don't want to get into that tonight uh, but the 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 other point that that I just scrolling through here uh, uh, interests me greatly is just the old ads. Uh, there's, yeah. you know, car ads oh, or cigarette ads. The cigarette you know, ads just blow me away. Yeah, <laughs> uh, t- how the 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 uh, Embraer uh, Bandariante is is new in the uh, uh, in the import market and, and for the commuter airlines and uh, um, <clears throat> uh, how Loran C. There's a there's an ad full page ad for a Texas Instruments um, ninety one hundred airborne Loran C. Navigator. Thing looks like um, I, I can't even begin to describe it. How, how how out of place it would look in in today's cockpits. And talking about um, you know, here's an ad for for a radar detector. It looks like a you know, kind of like an oven or something. Um, the, how the Sikorsky S seventy six was a brand new helicopter, and uh, it, it, it's just amazing how. Uh, how times have changed over the years, but how they really haven't changed that much. Yeah, it's really true. It's both ways. It is both ways. Yes. Well, and this this has come up in some discussions with some of my aviator friends here locally who have uh, been calling for making the, this year's round of user fee proposals, you know, out to be something spectacularly untoward and out of line and out of sync with the past. And it, uh, maybe I can get them to tune in and hear Jeb say, and there's this thing about how much the Reagan administration expected out of user fees. Because mm-hmm. this goes back, I think, to Woodrow Wilson when he heard that the Wright brothers had flown. That they were getting ready to sell airplanes commercially. Who was saying, "Well, we'll we'll need a fee for the air traffic services," and it's Mm -hmm. been with us as a proposal ever since. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yep. And and here, just again, continuing to scroll through this this issue of 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 the uh, May eighty two Flying Magazine. Here's a piece in here uh, by Richard Bach. Oh Part yeah. Part one of and Rit Bach was a contributor to flying back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're if you're into to to uh, um, box riding or if you're into 
I don't know, I, I would say a more romanticized uh, view of aviation than perhaps we get uh, uh, regularly these days, you know, this is a good place to start. And it's just, here, here, oh, wow, you know, a Mooney 231 ad, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> And and uh, look at some of the some of this stuff, and you're like, wow, how did we ever get from point A to point B? Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Well, well I, I remember flying a uh, Lawrence C demo uh, in a in a DC three, where they had. I, I was a, I was I flew a, that too. Yeah, I bet you did. It was there at a national airport. Uh-huh. Uh, FAA people, avionics manufacturer, then these little bitty compact boxes that you know did the whole thing. Had a little built-in CDI and everything, and it's like, wow, this is just amazing. And any point that can be programmed into it can be made. You know, you can designate that as a waypoint, and it's seamless, and it's the wave of tomorrow. And we were flying around on that, saying, "Really? Nah, Area <laughs> Nav will never catch on." Well, yeah. I I have a lot of memories of that too. Um, you and I were not on the same flight, but I mean, we flew on the same airplane for the same purposes, the same week, yeah. uh, flying out of what was then Butler out of out of DCA. Yep, and uh, this was an old. This was obviously an old. Um, uh, it started life, I'm sure, as a C forty seven. Yeah, it, it had that had, door. It had painted, but it was painted in camouflage color. It had the three white stripes on each wing for for the uh, D Day uh, recognition uh, scheme. Uh, I'm I'm I was told at the time and remember vividly that the aircraft had in fact served in World War II. Yep, and this would have been mid nineteen eighties when you and I were taking these fam rides. About eighty two uh, or eighty three. Uh, it would have been eighty three, eighty four for me. So I, I mean, that's when I was at NBAA, and uh, that's when I would have gotten this ride. So, if if anybody, if our listeners remember DC threes or at least how they were originally configured, you had the cockpit. And behind the cockpit, you had the radio equipment racks on right. either side of the aisle. You know, maybe you had you know the doors in the aft, of course. Uh, you had radio equi- equipment racks on either side of the aisle, and then you had another bulkhead, and then you had the passenger compartment. And this DC-3 was configured the, the exact same way. Uh, they had all this equipment in these radio racks, okay? And then the bulkhead moving aft and strapped onto this bulkhead in this particular airplane was like a, I don't know, um, 25-inch Sony monitor. You know, you think back Very to the good. to the Very 80s. Good. Yeah, this was this was a heavy piece of CRT. This was not an LCD panel, okay? And it was literally with like you know seat belts webbing strapped onto this bulkhead, and on that monitor was projected a moving map. Mm-hmm. Using this Loran system and using the the various equipment that was on in all these radio racks, and of course, I don't know how much this stuff weighed, but it was probably gross out of Skyhawk, just in and of itself. Right. And and everybody in the cabin was able to watch this monitor and see our position on this monitor. It was my first exposure to an airborne moving map. Yeah. Pretty and miraculous I, stuff yeah, back then. Really miraculous stuff back then. And and you think now you can hold this literally in the palm of your hand. Uh, we've come a long way, baby. Yeah, really, really. Well, and the receiver that was doing all that 
was the size of a KX 170 or 175. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that display was just what was being driven off of it for the demonstration. Yeah, but that had receiver- its own little thing up in the cockpit. Yeah, the receiver you're talking about, the, that was the other thing. See, they didn't have this in a cockpit. Okay, A, it wasn't approved. B, right. it was too big. C, if they had had it, they wouldn't have had to go miss when we were trying to get back into DCA <laughs> because they could have found the airport. Well, yeah. and that was the you big know. thing they were talking about, but, being um, able to create point-in-space approaches right. to airport runway ends served by the regionals in particular without them having to meet the traffic requirements for an ILS. Mm-hmm. You know, even then, that was the holy grail, point-in-space precision approach capability. Right. And, wow, it's only been 30 years, and bang, overnight, here we are. Yeah, <laughs> really. we finally have it. Yeah, really. So, hey, we got to move along here. Okay. Um, that's all pretty cool stuff, rolling, though. Rolling, rolling, rolling. Yeah. Um, I'm going to grab a couple stories out of the list here before we finish up. Um, a, a really interesting piece on the, the General Aviation News site recently about Swift Fuels. Uh, and uh, although the piece at first glance appears to be bylined by Janice Woods, uh, Wood, uh, one of their uh, regular reporters, um, it's actually... She's their editor. Uh, the editor, right. Um, it's actually apparently written by a guy named Ben Visser, whose name is familiar to me. Do you guys know Ben Visser? Oh, absolutely. Okay, who is Ben Visser? Ben Visser was the uh, aviation uh, interaction guy for Aeroshell for years. Yeah, okay. So he knows aviation fuels. And uh, he dug into the whole Swift fuel situation um, and, uh, and and has written an interesting piece that's been published here on the GA News website, pro- probably in the newspaper as well. Um, it uh, and And he... He seems to highlight some of the things that I sort of, in my uninformed way, were, were concerned about, um, about whether this thing was really ready for prime time and were they really, really prepared to, to uh, make this fuel. Um, I, let me preface or let me kind of quickly point out that um, uh, Visser does kind of conclude that things are, are probably making good progress for Swift Fuel. Um, one line, let's see, early on, he says, I'm happy to report that although Swift is not, quote, out of the woods yet, uh, it is making some significant progress. And he goes on to talk a lot about some of the, uh, the, the chemi- chemistry and, and, and science behind this and, and how uh, he thinks Swift Fuel kind of jumped to some conclusions about its viability and, and, and didn't really have a, a real proof of concept and uh, but that he thinks they now kind of realize the reality of the situation and what they really need to do to get this thing off the ground and uh, and and he's, he i think he ends up being somewhat optimistic about it um although he th- i think he's saying here that he thinks it's going to end up being a little more expensive than than they than even they're thinking it's going to be but uh, anyways have you guys read this article no i've seen it yeah, I looked at it after you put it on the list uh, because I've known Ben for a long time, and Ben was always kind of my uh, kind of my reality check reference point where petroleum products and airplanes were concerned, whether it was uh, a brand of fuel or an octane change or compatibility issues uh, when auto fuel STCs came along. Uh, 
or uh, lubricants, when new lubricants hit the market. Uh, he would tell you whether a competitor's new stuff was actually an improvement and why it was an improvement and just, you know, want, want, want you to swear in blood that you would never attribute that to him because he worked for the other guys. But he wouldn't blow <clears throat> smoke anywhere you wouldn't want to get smoked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, it's an interesting piece. And, uh, you know, uh, Swift Fuel has gotten a lot of very positive press over the last couple of years um, as a as a possible uh, replacement for 100 low lead. And, uh, and we all hope it will be or that something will be, a, you know, a, a viable replacement. Um, and I've had some issues with, with some Swift Fuel things that based on my, you know, you know, my Holiday Inn expertise, um, you know. Yeah, me too. Um, but Visser knows his stuff, apparently, and uh, he's he's put together a, an interesting analysis of, of you know, where they are right now and, and what they need to do to get to the finish line. And uh, I, I urge people who are at all interested in Swift Fuel or alternate uh, aviation fuels to take a look at this story in uh, General Aviation News. Uh, do you have anything you want to add to this? Have you had a chance to gla- glance at it? No, I, I, I uh, haven't really had a chance to go through it at all. Um, but I, I, what I do see in there is uh, um, what I would call kind of a reality check um, by uh, the Swift Fuel people as well as by Visser on you know where they have been, where they still need to go. And uh, I think that's all a good thing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I just call people's attention to that. Take a look. Um, Swift Fuel still, even after reading this article, Swift Fuel looks like a good uh, candidate, um, but it seems like it has a little bit further to go than maybe some of the stories we've heard have indicated. Anything we could do to get ourselves independent of the petroleum uh, feedstock on this and to separate us from that cost fluctuation would not be a bad thing for us no no not at all exactly right yeah so hey finally um so what's the story on this new rotax engine do you guys either of you know anything about this yeah this is this is what people have been arguing that about you know saying man you know my 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 little kia my hyundai my honda my ford taurus Individual cylinder fuel injection and electronic ignition, all controlled by a computer unit. We've seen some nibbles at this Apple. Um, the uh, folks at Teledyne Continental, they started uh, a, an STC program, a development program. They build an engine now that has a system somewhat comparable to this. But this 912 IS Rotax... Uh, I think may prove to be the engine that breaks the mold. It's fuel injected. It's electronic ignition. It automatically adjusts for altitude, power load, ambient conditions, temperature, manifold pressure, atmospheric pressure, throttle position. It does all the stuff that our cars have been doing for years, but no airplane has done. Right. But this is. I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say no airplane is done. Um, it's been done on an experimental basis. Um, That's true. Yeah. With with uh, um, even you know just big bore continentals. Um, uh, Gammy's been you know doing stuff like this for some time. Um, they, the certification hurdles and and uh, uh, market demand and things like that are are, are a problem. 
um, and, and, and I, you know, I'll, I'll, I, I'm not going to speak for Gammy. They can, they can, you know, uh, come on or, or look up uh, Gammy, and they'll tell you, you know, what 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 the story is with that system. Um, <clears throat> and I would guess that uh, other manufacturers and other engines have been doing pretty much the same thing. Uh, either on an experimental basis, um, let, me, let me rephrase, on a strictly experimental basis, non-certified, or uh, an experimental category basis, where uh, some people have, have, you know, with, with more smarts than I, have, have been able to run their engines like this on, with, with, with these systems. But yeah, I, I presume this is a certified uh, engine, or is this LSA certified? And that's my well, question too, David. It's going to be. It is being certified. Uh, it has to be certified to go in an LSA. It has to no, meet some. Not yes, the, not 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 all the same. Uh, what is it? Part thirty three standards, uh, but there are standards in Part thirty three. It has to meet to be uh, approved for use in a light sport aircraft. Then it has to be approved as part of the light sport aircraft. Right. Um, and it's going to meet those standards. Uh, Rotax 912S was also certified for GA use through an application for a uh, Quicksilver, Quicksilver years okay. ago. Yeah. 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 Uh, so they've been down this path before. Uh, you might remember Rotax was working on developing a couple of Part 23 GA aircraft engines a few years ago. This technology was supposed to be part of those engines. Uh, it's going to be stock on those engines. Those engines didn't come to the fore. Uh, the downturn, the drop in demand, uh, cost, certification issues uh, all conspired to have that shell. But from what I'm hearing, the uh, it achievements that they made in developing this kind of technology uh, are some of what's trickled into this 912 IS. Mm-hmm. As I, I believe this is going to be self-sustaining in terms of having its own electrical redundancy to, to maintain the system. Yeah. It's got a, that engine's already got a built-in flywheel alternator. Right. So as long as the engine turns, the alternator turns. Yeah. So it looks pretty cool. It's a uh, uh, but uh, I, I was curious about the certification issues too. Um, and uh, yeah, the, there are two aircraft uh, LSA makers that have already announced availability for this engine on their airframes. Pipistrel, who's been uh, doing flying it as a test bed, and Flight Designs, yeah. Flight Designs is doing it, uh, going to offer the engine. Um, and I look for it to, you know, eventually burble its way up into Part 23 use. I'd like to see that, too. I, whether it's this platform or, or a different engine. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that struck me on this in just reading this press release, um, it's a standard 912. Um, it, it is 100 horsepower, I believe, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 100 horsepower. And the, the standard 912 is only 80 horsepower. Um, the nine, the nine twelve, uh, nine twelve S is a hundred, right? And and then so this is the IS, which I guess the I means uh, injected or or something like that. But um, uh, one of the ways, but right right out of the box, I think they're saying two thousand uh, hour TBO. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw um, that. Yep, and that that tells me a lot right there. First of all, um, that um, they think that the um, the injection and the, the the electronic ignition on this 
is going to uh, drastically prolong um, its or drastically improve, shall we say, reliability and longevity. Yeah. Of this Did any of these press releases talk about the relative fuel burn compared to the uh, normally carbureted one? Yeah, let's see. They're claiming 38% to 70% better fuel efficiency than comparably comparable competitive engines in the light sport, ultralight aircraft, and GA industries. Well, that's nice and uh, vague. Well, yeah. uh, well, what well, I'm hearing is compared to the dual carb versions that this uh, uh, augments. The, the regular 100-horse 912 right. as a dual carburetor engine that should be looking somewhere in the neighborhood of the 30-plus percent improvement. Yeah. Improvement. That's pretty significant. Well, well yeah, the, because you got the combination of the fuel injection and the ignition system all being managed in sync by an engine control unit. Right. No, I understand what makes it better. I just that's I didn't think it would necessarily be that much better. Well, electronic in- ignition has a big boost on its own. Right. Fuel e- fuel injection has a significant boost on its own. Uh, they comp they tend to compound the improvements yeah. when they both get to work together. Yeah. And I think that's th- what's going to be seen here. The other thing going on here too, and I presume. You know, I'd like to see some more specs on this, but I'm sure they're out there. But um, I, I presume this has variable ignition timing, variable, variable valve timing. It obviously has, you know, uh, uh, electronically controlled fuel injection, things like that. All of which, you know, A, as is, is, is one, one of the two you pointed out earlier in this conversation, you know, has been available on our, our, our terrestrial vehicles for more than 20 years. Um just getting it on on a production certificated aircraft engine is a big deal. Yeah. So yeah. it's cool. So, you we'll know, look forward it, to it. Congratulations to them. Yeah. Uh, imagine uh, a Rotax 912. Well, for reference point, a 100 horsepower uh, Continental uh, IO200 engine or O200 engine, IO240, I'm sorry or an O200, they burn about five to five and a half an hour at 75% power in cruise. Right. A 912 with the dual carbs beats that by about a gallon an hour. Right. Well, shave 35% off of that number. And you're getting down into you're the three, down. three gallons an hour. You know, right. You're getting down to 75% power capability on the, in in the low three to mid three gallon an hour range yeah right that'd right. be cool that'd be cool anything on this anything this air this engine goes on is looking at a 25 to 30 percent improvement in range based on whatever existing fuel capacity they already had yeah anyways hey listen we got to move along here but uh, that's a pretty interesting engine i'm looking to i'm looking forward to hearing more about it I'm trying to wangle a little seat time in one at a at a, at a show coming up soon. Cool. Is cool. it? Is there a show coming up? Is there a show coming up? Hey, shout outs. What do we got here? Uh, there's a couple on the list. I don't know if you, any of you guys want to jump in here. Uh, well, let's see what we got here. Um, yeah, I got. I'll take one. Go. Okay. Um, a man who who really needs no shout out. Bob Hoover. Um, um, we have a story on here we didn't get to tonight about him basically doing a a house call Uh, there was a P-51 airborne um, yeah near Mobile yeah Mobile downtown Um, this was back uh, late February February 26 Uh, P-51 flown by uh, uh, Chuck 
Gardner taking a LCP-51, taking a passenger Bill Barton uh, for a ride, and they had a stuck landing gear. And apparently got on the phone. Someone on the, someone got on the phone. I, I got the pilot in contact with by radio with Bob Hoover, uh, named here in this story as a 90-year-old P-51 veteran from World War II and the Korean War. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> okay. And uh, Hoover apparently talked the pilot through some, some I'm sure, some high-G, low-G maneuvers to, to get the... Um, uh, left main landing gear on the on this P fifty one unstuck. They successfully uh, did so. They got the landing gear uh, unstuck and got it deployed and got it locked down and landed safely. No damage to the airplane. But I was just struck by this whole thing. You know, you got a problem with a fifty one? Give Hoover a call. Yeah, right. Uh, and he, he does house calls. That's great. You I know. know. Uh, I don't even know what to say. It's a it's a great yeah, story. It's a great yeah. story, and uh, it is a great story. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So congratulations to Bob Hoover for finding a new career in the, in this new stage of his life. Um, while, while I got the floor here for a second, yeah, uh, we were we were talking earlier in the in the episode about uh, short runways and whatnot. I mentioned a, uh, an airport that I'd flown a, another Bonanza pilot into, and so you can't make the you can't make that turn off. You can't do it. You know, da, 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 da. I finally found the airport here. It's uh, Whiskey Seventy Five. Hummel Field Airport, um, just south on, on the Potomac uh, uh, River there. Um, it's 2,200 feet long, and uh, I misremembered the, uh, the uh, midfield. It's actually, it's actually more of a two-thirds field taxiway, mm-hmm. uh, which would put it in probably in the 1,500-foot range or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was easy to make. Yeah, sounds uh, good. In, in, in my airplane at that particular time. Cool. Other shout-outs? David, you got anything? I got a quickie. Go ahead. Uh, old, old friend, former colleague, all-around bright guy who never lost his sense of adventure and learning new stuff. Name is John Sheehan. Mm. John yeah. Sheehan and I were colleagues at the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. I believe it was John's uh, big civilian transition job after he retired from the military. It was my big transition job from being a writer on a hang gliding magazine to work at AOPA. Uh, we got to be buddies. He was fascinated about the uh, ultralight stuff. I was fascinated by the fact that a guy with military chops would be working at a private pilot's organization. Uh, John's maintained a relationship with AOPA years longer than me. Uh, and for the last 15 years, he has served as the uh, uh, Secretary General of the International Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association organization, uh, the network that kind of knits together all the various AOPAs in the various countries and regions around the the world. Uh, He's been working on this out of Frederick all these years. Uh, And I want to give a shout-out to him on his impending retirement. Uh, Oh, yeah. the, uh, The likes of John Sheehan, with his enthusiasm, his uh, diversity of knowledge and, and open-mindedness uh, are rare combinations uh, and rare in the depth and, and, and excitement that John always brought to them. Uh, always had a great, great wry sense of humor. And uh, I'm proud I got to work with him. Uh, I hope we'll continue to bump into him uh, here and there down the line, even after he uh, moves into welcome retirement, his second one at least. 
congratulations, John, and shout out to you. Thanks for your service. Hey, I want to jump in here and uh, call attention. Well, you one of you put on the list the fact that the uh, Sun and Fun Notum is out, and if you're dun, planning, dun, if you're planning to fly into dun, dun. planning to fly into the Sun and Fun flying this year, you may make sure you want to get a copy of that Notum, even if you're not flying in. It's an interesting reading, and uh, um, you can get that online and probably order get a hard your souvenir copy. copy. Collect them all. Yeah, that's right. Um, but while we're talking about Sun and Fun, I want to call attention to the fact that uh, as we have done for the last what three four years now uh uncontrolled airspace will be at sun and fun um it, it we will yes it, it passes our fifth, our fifth year yeah it, who, the, who the hell approved that yeah i know really well you know it, it passeth all understanding that our pal dave Shalbetter uh keeps inviting us back but he does and uh so we once again will be doing two uh, regular episodes of the podcast uh from the uh, the, the deck of the sun and fun uh, radio station there on the grounds of the fly-in uh we'll be doing one one uh, at approximately uh, six o'clock on uh, Tuesday evening, which is the first day of Sun and Fun. Uh, it'll begin, you know, approximately at the end of the Daily Air Show, and we'll be going for about ninety minutes and kind of talking to whoever we can drag up onto the deck with us. And then we will also do another regular episode, also from the deck, on uh, Sunday morning, closing day of uh, of Sun and Fun. I believe we're beginning that one at ten thirty, and uh, you'll be able to hear us uh, live there on the airwaves in. In, uh, Lakeland, you can Sun and Fun Radio. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you can listen to uh, us live on the internet stream that is once again being uh, sponsored or supported by, provided by, sponsored by LiveATC.net. And uh, and if you are actually on the grounds either of those two times, you can come on by and uh, hang out uh, at the, sort of on the fringes of the deck and uh, participate a little bit. And, and uh, since since there'll be fringes on the deck, you'll feel right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So, anyways, yeah, right. Uh, so anyways, long story short, we're going to do two episodes uh, from from uh, Sun and Fun on uh, Tuesday evening and Sunday morning. We'll also be doing our uh, little shorter uh, da- uh, UCAP dailies uh, each day throughout the week so uh, a lot of ucap coming out of sun and fun again this year yeah anyways any other shout outs before we wrap this thing up are we done Get out the fork. We're done. We're done. Uh, Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor. He's currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, you've been working on anything interesting that we get to chance to yeah, see? Yeah, I finally put the, the April issue of Safety to bed. Um, I I can't even tell you what's in it right off the top of my head. You've it repressed it all, right? Yeah. yeah, I really have. I did a piece on... Um, on uh, runway loss of uh, control issues and, and accidents, and and uh, you know trying to break down some of the reasons why we might have our locks, as we call them, um, had a great piece by Amy, uh, Amy Labota, mm-hmm. on um, elect- in-flight electrical failures. Uh, another really good piece um, by uh, Tom Turner, the aforementioned Tom Turner, uh, on um, you know we we got all this infrastructure and, and, and we got all this equipment and skills and everything based on GPS and flying direct and whatnot. It says, you know, what if all of a sudden we didn't have GPS? And especially what would happen if you were born and GPS failed or, you know, the satellites went, went down or, or, you know, there was some widespread jamming and we can talk about that on a future episode or, you know, think, what are you going to do? Uh, and it was a it was a fairly eye opening thing. And how, how many of you out there raise your hands are current on doing VOR approaches? 
Dun, da, da, da. It's so. one of my practice points, but yeah. yep, yep. So, yeah. so uh, now, um, a- Aviation Safety Magazine is not available uh, by a uh, single issue or online. How does someone learn more well, about you, Aviation you, Safety? They can go to aviationsafetymagazine.com. And uh, uh, there are some, you know, like the lead-in articles are available for free. Uh, I should say the lead-in graphs to some articles, I think most articles, if not all of them, are available for free. Uh, If you uh, were a subscriber and you can do so directly on that website, um, you can immediately, you know, read back issues, read the current issue, whatever you wanted to do, Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, have the current issues mailed to you in hard copy. Cool. And where else can we find you on the Internet? Oh, let's see. JEBurnside.com, AEA.net occasionally, AvWeb occasionally. Um, Google me, uh, ignore that stuff about the goats, um, or, um, you know, just, just, uh, you know, I might even be on Facebook and Twitter it's every now and then. Who knows? Yeah. And, uh, Dave Higdon is a uh, aviation photographer and aviation journalist and the U S editor for London's world aircraft sales magazine. David, what have you been working on? Anything we can take a look at? Well, the latest issue of Avionics News Magazine, which you can probably find around your local shop or FBO, uh, I've got an article on the uh, the uh, development of standalone WAS GPS navigation equipment and how that seems to be uh, the kind of standalone navigators that we started to get spoiled by in some ways with the advent of those uh, Loran C units mm-hmm. that Jeb and mm-hmm. I were talking about back in the 80s uh, that evolved to smaller units and then into GPS standalone units. Uh, that's kind of going away. Uh, right now, nobody's working on a WAS standalone unit like that that we could find. But there's lots of developments as long as you're ready to upgrade to something that is an all-in-one. And what publication you, is that appearing in? Avionics News Magazine, the, uh, the uh, uh, product of the Aircraft Electronics Association. Yeah, and where else can we find you on the Internet? Oh, avbuyer.com for my work in World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Uh, we got some nice stuff coming up in March, I mean, in April, uh, including a piece on engine upgrades for business turbines. So. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Please check out my latest Kindle ebook called Around the Field, Volume 1, Stories of the People, Places, and Planes of the Oshkosh Fly-In. And uh, you can learn more about that if you go to uh, Amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson. And you can also learn other things about me, probably more than you really want to know, at uh, jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for helping us with the show notes, and uh, he's also involved in uh, forums now, too, so uh, we really appreciate that. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Roy Searle, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast... And help us get that Boeing business jet. Boeing business jet. We want that 747-whatever it was, 8 or something. Dash 8. Well, that's a... that's a, a, a BBJ variant. There you go. Gotta, gotta walk before you can run. That's right. For information on how you can help us get this airplane, um, you can make a donation. Oh, oh, oh look. There's, there's a number up on the tote board. We are only $379,995.50 away from topping off the tank the first time. 
You can uh, uh, see now I've completely lost my place in the script here. Uh, you can make, see how you can make a donation. You can see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. And don't forget you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you were going to say something? Well, you know, I feel like I've lived longer today because I'm looking outside at 7.30 and it's still light out. So, But that's not as much fun or nearly as effective as going flying because, you know, flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Happy Daylight Savings Time Day. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. Ricky, Ricky, Ricky. <laughs> The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.